0: Before I start reading Acts chapter 17, let me pray. There's a verse that says that when people heard the Bible explained, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So, Father, we want to pray that you would please help us as we now listen to the Bible that we might be closely looking to see how these things are true in what you say in scripture and help us all we pray to grow our confidence in you and in our love for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. 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 Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. I'm only going to read to verse 15 today and we'll pick up verse 16 another Sunday. Romans, uh, Acts chapter 17 verse 1. And when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were far more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now we stop there. You're ready. I am good. But look, who are the kind of person that will come into mind if I told you that there is someone upsetting the world? If you have to think of a group of people upsetting the world at this moment in time who would you think of? I guess some people might think of ISIL or ISIS or Daesh or whatever they happen to be called, and that would fit the bill, but they are upsetting people right across the world. And the newspapers this week uh, have been about uh, Muslims involved in fighting and then wanting to return to to, uh, England. Uh, I guess uh, little uh, Eddie might want to... Uh, find a quiet place, uh, Rob, I imagine. And so those Muslims involved in fighting and want to return to Britain. And the Home Secretary has revoked their passport saying, we don't want these people who've been upsetting the world to come over here. And when faith is linked with terrorism, it is upsetting the world, isn't it, and most people? In different countries, I think, in Melbourne, Australia, there's someone who was uh, arrested this week for trying to blow up a bus, and wherever it is in the world, people get upset when faith is linked to violence in that way. But Christianity doesn't upset anybody. I mean, it's about as controversial as a lettuce leaf on the third day that is completely without any offense. And yet in verse 6, it is Christians who are accused of turning the world upside down, of causing great upset. And my friends, if you've never worked out why Christianity is so upsetting, my guess is we haven't actually worked out Christianity. So let's work out tonight why people do get upset. And let's work out why they don't. By very quickly looking at two towns the Christians visited. One in Thessalonica, who got very upset. And one in Berea, who loved what they heard. So let's go to Thessalonica, and uh, they get upset, and let's see why. Let me tell you at the start, that Thessalonica is a wonderfully self confident city. It's right by the sea. It's a great thriving port so there's lots of trade coming in and out. It's a very, very rich place. You can tell that by the number of uh, uh, coins that they produced to keep up with all the trade that was going on. Mm. And it's uh, rich, it's confident and it's large. Even today, It's continued large, only it's changed the name, it's shortened it. Instead of Thessalonica, it's now Saloniki, and that's what it's called these days. And it's on the map, and it's still a thriving place. And so big that this town has its own synagogue. You might remember last week we went to Philippi, and they didn't have enough Jews to have a synagogue here. It's such a big place, they've got their own synagogue, which is what gets upset with them. And you would expect the synagogue to get upset because Paul, when he goes into the synagogue, is really playing on home ground. After all, he's uh, opening up the Bible, the same Bible that they read, and he's helping them to understand about the true God that he and they believe in. And he is helping them to understand the true God from the Old Testament which is what they like to do. And they understand that in the Old Testament God promises to send a Messiah who one day will come and he'll be like David, in fact greater than David, and he will be a great king who will bring God's rescue and God's justice to his world. That's what they're expecting. Paul's expecting it, they're expecting it. You wouldn't expect a clash. What well, do you accept? That if you look at verse 3, you can see that although they're on the same field, it seems like Paul is going the wrong way. Because he's saying that their glorious king had to suffer. As far as the Jews were concerned, that disqualified Jesus to be a glorious king if he's a suffering king. And the Jews really struggled to understand how this king would not be the glorious king that they were all thinking would come. As you might remember, when the disciples of Jesus had been with Jesus for a while, well, it's a good time, isn't it, to take a test? And so you get the test. If you look at uh, Luke chapter 9, let's go there quickly, and Luke is the person who wrote Acts and in his previous book, keep a finger in Acts chapter 17, and go to Luke chapter nine, and in verses 18 to 22, you see the test that Jesus set the disciples. And wonderfully, like uh, good tests, if you're um, uh, opening up the paper and having a look, the first question starts with an easy one. In verse 18 of chapter nine, Jesus asked him, who do the crowds say that I am? And they give him different answers second question is slightly more tricky. Who do you say I am? And Peter gets it right with flying colours. You are the Christ. You are the glorious king that we're looking for. He knows you can put Jesus and the Old Testament together and come out with that answer. But then Jesus has to go on to say in verses 21 and 22 that they couldn't say another word about the glorious king until they understood about the suffering king. And so he strictly charges and commands them to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The thing is, even though Jesus had actually spelt it out and you couldn't get it spelt out more clearly than that, even so, when Jesus died, when he suffered, when he was killed, when it was predicted that on the third day he'd rise again, no one believed that. And so when you catch up with the disciples, they're on a long walk to a road, on a road to a place called Emmaus, and uh, keep uh, Luke in front of you. Go to the last chapter of Luke, chapter 24, and if you look at verses 25 to 27, you see that they're pretty crestfallen that Jesus has died. Luke chapter 24 and uh, verse 25. Uh, Well, first, you get that, um, um, uh, where was it, that said they they looked uh, sad, yes. Um, Verse 17. That's right, verse 17. uh, And they stood still looking sad when Jesus starts the conversation with them. And then in verse 25, they explain uh, why uh, they were sad, because they were hoping for someone to come uh, and to um, uh, to rescue them. Now, where, where does it say that? I've got my verse 21, cross you know, references. That's Israel. right. Yes, do uh, or write those verses in your notes. Uh, they were sad because, in verse twenty-one, it says, "We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but that hasn't happened. He's not been the glorious king. He's just gone and died." Mm-hmm and then Jesus has to stay in verse 25 finally in verse 25 he said to them "O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and then beginning with Moses in verse 27 and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself that he was going to suffer first Now that's what's happening in in verse chapter sixteen, verse three. Paul is having to make the same point from the scriptures in verse seventeen, chapter seventeen, verse three. He has to explain and prove it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, reasoning with them from the scriptures, and they missed it. And they'd missed it, not because it was in the small print and they hadn't quite got the specs out to look at something so small. It's written up everywhere, as Jesus said in Luke 24, in all the scriptures. And yet, they haven't seen it. And Paul has to say, let me open up the Bible and reason with you from the scriptures. Now, that would have been a great point, wouldn't it, for them to say, look, Paul, I'm so glad you've come today, and I'm very grateful to you for helping me to understand what the Bible is really saying. Very hard to turn around to Paul and thank you for his teaching, when you're the one who's the teacher who's got it wrong. And at that point, they become jealous, because Paul had seen what they hadn't seen. Now the Jews that are getting jealous here are not all the Jews because you see that some of them were persuaded by Paul and they joined Paul and Silas. And let's face it, Paul and Silas are also Jews. So we're not talking about Jews in general. We're talking about the people in charge of the synagogue, the authorities, and the establishment don't like a new teacher coming in and showing them that what is in the Bible they've never actually understood or taught themselves. And it's not just that uh, Paul's picked up a small part of the Bible and there's this small little omission and there are certain verses that they hadn't read out as much as they should have done. Paul says that you get the whole of Jesus wrong if you don't understand that he'd come to suffer because the reason he came to suffer is because his death was the only way to save the likes of you and me who are always getting God wrong. And we can't get ourselves right with him in any other way apart from him taking the punishment that we deserve, suffering in that process. Now that completely reverses all that the Jewish leaders were saying, that is you got to read the Bible and get the law and that's the way to get put right with God. And if you spent all your career in the synagogue, telling people to get right this way and then the new teacher comes along and says this way won't work, it's necessary for the Christ to suffer and then you find that the best brains in your synagogue are listening to them and being persuaded. Well, that's how jealousy gets going and takes off. I suppose you could say that they'd given people the wrong key to get themselves into heaven. The key of keeping the law, being good, of doing the things that God likes, that's never going to get into heaven. The key has got to move on to the cross. That is the key to get us into heaven. Except actually, you don't need the key anymore. Because what Jesus did when he suffered was he opened the door wide open. So keys aren't necessary. And yet religion, in every shape or form around the world, gives you a key of law, however they define it, to get yourself in. And then Jesus suffers and he says, look, no key is needed. I've opened the door by my suffering. Come, walk in. And so therefore, what they've done is they see that they've given people the wrong key, that they've got none of God's kingdom right when they didn't get this part of Jesus right. And therefore, the jealousy is now on the march and so they get the mob in verse 5 who is rich isn't it they start a riot and accuse Paul of being the troublemaker that's a good way to do it and in verse 6 they turn a jealousy issue into a political issue because that's going to play better with the city authorities they have to act if they're saying that Paul and Silas are against the emperor can't stand back and do nothing then so they go off and try to get Paul and Paul's out to the shops or wherever he is that afternoon and they don't get him and so Jason's dragged in and Jason has to give money to say that Paul and Silas are going to leave town and so Paul and Silas have to go off because they don't want believers like Jason to suffer and because they've done enough to leave a church with Jason there and others. That uh, wonderfully... Uh, Will explain Jesus to that town later. And so off they go to Berea, which is the other synagogue. And this time they have more noble people there who aren't worried about saving faith, about getting the Bible wrong in the past. They just want to make sure that they've got the Bible right this time. And so they get out the Bible. And they carefully, with all eagerness, examine the scriptures daily, not just on the Sabbath, daily, to see if these things were so. It is wonderful, isn't it, that Paul goes to do this? Because you'd think, well, after being thrown out of one place, that he's not going to do the same thing in the next place. And he goes to the next place and he does the very same thing, but this time it's different because people are examining the scriptures, and looking at what he's saying from them. And so they believe after examination in verse 11. That's a legal word that says that they look at all the evidence carefully, the way they would in a court of law. And that's good for us to learn, isn't it? Because it is very possible on the one hand to say that there is nothing to believe, There's no God and therefore nothing to believe. On the other hand, it's possible to say, well, we'll believe anything you tell us. But they do neither of those things. They say there is something to believe. You can't say there's nothing to believe. There is truth to believe. But they won't believe any old truth. So they examine the truth to see whether it is true. We might therefore say that they believe in doctrine, truth, but they don't believe in indoctrination, which is the believing of any truth. But you might ask, why, if you want to know about God and believe in Him, why do you have to read the Scriptures? Because surely the Scriptures have a vested interest to tell you about God, and therefore, if you go there, of course you're going to find out about God. You've got to look outside the Bible if you want to find out if God is God objectively. It's a bit like saying, um, if I want to find out if there's uh, a Santa Claus or not, I go to Side of Christmas and I read the store publicity and I see that there's a Santa's grotto in the store and therefore there must be Father Christmas. He's there. And of course he's there because it's part of Lakeside's money-making advertising to get him there. And they put him in the prospectus because it suits their purposes. And that's what we might say the Bible does with God. It suits the Bible's purposes to say there's a God. So that's not the best place to go then, is it? If you want an objective view of whether there's a God or not. But yet what the Bible tells us is it does give us all the important tests to see if there is a God in the world and what he is like. So how do you know, for example, that there is a God who is in control of everything that happens? Surely one way to establish that is to see a promise that he made centuries earlier that the Christ must suffer, and then to see hundreds of years after that that exactly all those promises came true in Jesus. Now there must be therefore a God in control of things because only a God in control of the future can tell you hundreds of years before it happens what the future is going to do. And so you can go to the Bible and say well I can check out the promise here and I can check out the the fulfilment of that promise here, and I can see there's hundreds of years of difference. Of course, that's a good test that what is telling me is true. How do I know if God can be trusted? How do you know someone's trustworthy when they give you your word, and you know that you can rely on your, on their word, and then you trust their word? Well, look at the Bible, and it says there's a promise that Jesus will come, and He will suffer, and then you see that that's exactly what happens. God can be trusted because he is faithful to do what he has promised. How do you know if God is good? Well, if Jesus came to suffer, because that is the way in which you will be welcomed into heaven, but then it is an immense goodness to do that and to show that there is then a possibility that we can be acceptable to God. All these tests can be seen and carried out in the Bible. And if you think that there can be tests that you have to bring from outside the Bible to establish if there's a God or not, let me ask you, what test would work? Some people say, Well, the test if there's a God or not is is there in my feeling. I feel that there is a God. We go on the doorsteps and we say, How do you know if there's a God? They say, Well, I feel that there is something there. Is that a good test? What happens on the day you feel that He is not there? Is He there and not there? And on Tuesdays He is and on Wednesdays He isn't? That's hardly a good test, is it? Other people say it's a good test if God answers prayer. I ask God for things and then God gives me the things I ask for and there must be a God to do that. But that doesn't work either because there are some things you'll ask for that you don't get. And what do you make of it then? And where does God commit himself in any way to give us what we ask for? If he's not given up... Given us a commitment that he will give us what we ask for, then how can we fault him if he doesn't and say there isn't a God when we expect him to do something that he's never told us he will? Other people say, Well, I believe in God if he suddenly appears and impresses me that he is God. Mm-hmm. Great. Does that test work? How would he you know that? The person in front of you who is claiming to be God and is impressing you as God is a God you can trust and is reliable. The only way you know that is if he's given you a promise and time tells you that that promise is fulfilled and he can be trusted. Just turning up on the spot is not going to tell you that he is reliable, faithful. So the only place where you get the test that you can turn to and understand and where they work is actually by looking at the Bible. It's not a book with vested interest, it's a, it's a book with evidence that you can check. And the only reason you don't want to look at the Bible is if you do not want there to be a God. In which case, the less time you read it, the more convinced you will be that he's not there. And the more you'll be able to invent your own version of God that will let you do what you want with the God of the Bible and with your life. So the Brians tell us this is the way to find out the reality of God. Search the scriptures, examine them eagerly daily to see if what is being said is so. What can we learn from that? in our own day as we see what we can take home tonight. First, if you are a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, and you want to find out about Christianity, one of the first things to work out is, have you examined the Scriptures? It's interesting, because once Jesus told a group of people how On the Day of Judgment, the Queen of the South, or Queen of Sheba, she's sometimes called, will condemn the people who didn't make an effort to find out. Why? Because she came from wherever Sheba was, in probably Ethiopia, all the way traveling across the desert to finally get to Solomon to find out where the goddess Solomon is really true and worthy of belief. And so, as you can see in the notes in Luke chapter 11 and verse 31, it's going to be very hard to get in front of Jesus and to say, I just didn't bother to find out. I didn't bother to examine. It's going to be very hard to do that when the Queen of Sheba is sat there next to you. And it says that in Luke chapter 11 and verse 31. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. No, if you seriously want to know, come and read the Bible with us. Join us uh, Tuesday week to do Christianity Explored, and we'll read the Bible, and we'll find out what is true. So you can test and check out the truth about God. And if you don't want to examine, then, my friends, just be honest and say, you don't want to know, and therefore, You won't take the risk of reading the Bible and finding out that these things are so and finding out what the reality of your future will be from the God who tells us what the future will be. If you're not a Christian, examine the scriptures and check the God of the Bible. And understand him there if you've been to church lots you might be called a religious person you notice the ones in this story who are really upset are the religious people the ones who went to the synagogues but it's always worth noticing that there are actually two synagogues you can go to and one understands uh, God's way accurately. The other one gets it the other way around, upside down. A friend who I met last week and the week before as well told me that when we spent our evening together and we spoke about Jesus and I tried to help him to understand why Jesus was needed, he realized that his whole life belief had to be dismantled at that point as he realized that Jesus needed to suffer to die to take the punishment for his sin when he hadn't even thought of himself as a sinner so it may be that actually you've gone to churches like these people who went to synagogues but which synagogues have you been to if it's like the one in Thessalonica then you've been to the places, the churches, that will give you a key of how to behave in order to get into the kingdom of God. Whereas if you are a noble Berean who have examined the scriptures, you will see the scriptures aren't laws for us to obey, they're laws that tell us how disobedient we are and how much we therefore need someone to suffer for us to get in, take God's judgment in our place. But then lastly, what happens if you are an evangelist? Um, I used to say, what happens if you're a real Christian? I think I'm going to change that and say what happens if you're an evangelist? Because if you're a real Christian, you're an evangelist. And if you're not a real Christian, you wouldn't bother evangelizing. And the two words are mixed in acts and you can't tell uh, an evangelist if you can't tell a Christian if they're not evangelizing. So if you are an evangelist, let me ask you, are you willing to upset the world? Because the majority of Christians, I think, who aren't Christians, if they're not evangelists, are ultimately going to live with a view that you can live and let live. I'll have my view of God, and Paul could have taken that view, that what people believed in their own synagogue was their own thing, and Paul just thought of something different and we can stay side by side on that one and Paul would have stayed friends with the people in Thessalonica to this day. But Paul wasn't going to buy that. He wasn't going to take what they were thinking and say, well, okay, that's your way of thinking that. What he did was to try and turn their thinking upside down that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and if it was necessary for Jesus to suffer to rise from the dead then my friends it is just as necessary for us to stop anybody saying you can get to God by yourself can you see the logic of that if it was necessary for Jesus to die then it cannot be possible for us to live and let live. It's necessary for us to turn that way of thinking up on its head. And that will upset people all over the world. Now Christians are not going to upset people the way Islamist extremists upset people we are not there to put bombs under governments as it says here we are not anti-Caesar but we do put bombs under people's goodness and that's actually far more upsetting for them and we need to have the courage to keep doing that even though in one place we may be rejected for doing that we need to go to the next place and do the same thing the way that Paul did after Thessalonica repeating that in (coughs) Berea in the goodness of God there will be noble people in the next place who will examine the scriptures with all eagerness do it daily and to therefore receive what the Bible says and love Jesus for his sacrifice rather than hate what they hear because it pricks the bubble of their own goodness. Let's pray that God will help us to keep doing that as a church even though we might get rejected from place to place. It's helpful to see, isn't it, that the gospel uh, goes on only when it is kicked out and that happens right through Acts and it's true today as well. Let's pray that God will help us to persevere and keep going as evangelists who want to see Jesus properly understood. A minute for you to think, and then I'll pray. Well, I'm mean up, so let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you for the scriptures which explain and prove that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead." Thank you for the way that opens the door without giving us a key that requires our own effort to get in. And we do want to thank you Father that the scriptures show us through the suffering of Jesus that uh, you are in control of people coming to your kingdom what you promised centuries ago you have fulfilled thank you that that shows us that you are reliable and faithful and can be trusted and thank you that it shows us that you are good and gracious and make a relationship with you possible through the suffering and death of your son and through his rising from death. And we do want to pray, Lord, that you would please help us to have fresh confidence in what the Scriptures tell us, and to use them effectively in helping others to see how Jesus died for them. And we pray this for his glory. Amen. Amen.